1: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to a former guest on the podcast, Frank Baumgartner. Frank's been with us before talking about a previous book. Uh, His new book, Deadly Justice, A Statistical Portrait of the Death Penalty, is recently published by Oxford University Press. I have Frank with me here today. Frank, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. We've worked out our technical problem, and and now can uh, hear uh, more about the book. And before we get to the the substance of the book, maybe you could tell us just a little bit about your co-authors, your number of uh, co-authors on this book.
0: Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. I have four co-authors. Um, they were all undergraduate students of mine here at the University of North Carolina. And they took a big lecture class that I taught uh, for which this will become a required text now. And then they further took a research seminar where we worked on chapters of the book. And then they stayed involved with the project even after that for several years. So Marty Davidson is the first. And he's now in graduate school at the University of Michigan, my alma mater. Kanisha Johnson is in graduate school in government at Harvard. And Arvind Krishnamurthy is in grad school now. Uh, at Duke University, just down the road, and then Colin Wilson is working um uh, as a paralegal at a civil rights law firm in washington d c before he decides where to go to further his education
1: yeah it's uh fantastic to bring this group together and and publish together with undergraduate students. I wish we all had the chance to do more of that it 's resulted in a really interesting book uh You write at the start of the book uh that you begin in nineteen seventy two Uh, with a series of court rulings. Uh, What did the court rule in 1972 and then overturn later that sets the stage for your analysis? Well, the United States
0: has always had capital punishment. And in 1972, in the Furman v. Georgia decision, the Supreme Court ruled that the existing rules of capital punishment were unconstitutional, that they amounted to a capricious and arbitrary separation of those who deserved the death penalty or who got the death penalty. Uh, from those other uh, homicide offenders who did not get the death penalty. And they said that uh, one of the justices wrote that that was akin to being struck by lightning, that it was freakish and wanton, and that type of arbitrariness was not commiserate with the constitutional guarantees of equal protection. Uh, So that was 1972, and there were about 700 people on death row around the country, and they were all removed from the various death rows. Uh, so, Sirhan Sirhan, who had who had killed um, um, Bobby Kennedy, for example, was removed from death row. As was Charles Manson, who had been on death row uh, in California. So,
1: it was a big decision. You also talk uh, about the so-called Marshall hypothesis uh, at the start of the book. Uh, what did Justice Marshall hypothesize about uh, public's opinion about the, the death penalty and the, the the changing death penalty? Because there's a series of, of rulings that come out after 1972 that, that further shape uh, the way the death penalty is, uh, is used.
0: Well, Thurgood Marshall, of course, was uh, one of the members of the Supreme Court in both 1972 and 76. And he was one of two who argued in 1972 that the death penalty was in any way, shape, or form was unconstitutional. Uh, and he, he argued also that uh, public opinion on the matter was not immediately relevant to the question of constitutionality. And he said that what would matter would be public opinion if fully um, educated about the nature of how the death penalty really works. So we took the Marshall hypothesis very seriously in our book. And what we've tried to do is um, provide chapter after chapter a very precise statistical bits of evidence about how the death penalty really works. And uh, we try to avoid any kind of preaching or morality in the book, but do want to give people information about the actual functioning of the system because uh, Thurgood Marshall's uh, suggestion was that if people really knew how it does work in fact, they would have a different
1: opinion than how they might think it should work. Now, Chapter 2 just does just that, which is walk through the way capital punishment actually works. Uh, what are the major differences between the, this process for capital punishment and the process for other serious charges? Walk us through those that, the way that works.
0: Well, the first difference is that only certain types of crimes are eligible for capital punishment. And those are supposed to be crimes that are particularly heinous or otherwise deserving and that heinousness is supposed to be related to the, the characteristics of the crime, but also the characteristics of the criminal or the accused uh, criminal, uh, that the it should be particularly wanton, um, not a quote-unquote garden variety uh, homicide, and only homicides are eligible for the death penalty. Uh, so the first thing is it's only a, supposed to be a select minority of all homicides, And then second, there are numerous guarantees that are supposed to be built into the system so that we make sure that the death penalty truly is proportionate and really reserved for the so-called worst of the worst. Uh, So that includes uh, comparing that the Supreme Courts of each state should compare the cases where juries uh, give back a a verdict of death or sentence of death uh, and compare those to make sure that they really are Uh, the worst cases, the most deserving, Uh, not simply a randomly selected or arbitrary or capricious uh, group of people selected out. And then there's guarantees of direct appeals through the state Supreme Courts and at least one direct appeal through the federal system so that no inmate could ever be executed in the United States since 1976 without uh, the federal government Reviewing the state case because about 90 over ninety percent of all criminal cases are held in uh, the state courts, not in federal court.
1: Now homicides are the primary crime to consider here and you write that and I quote, compared with other similar countries, the United States faces an epidemic of homicides, and this has been true throughout our history. Which statistics best illustrate this epidemic that you describe? Well,
0: almost any way you look at it, um, whether it's the number of homicides, the United States will have on any given year um, somewhere between ten and 25,000 homicides. Uh, At the peak, which was in the 1990s, there were uh, over 20,000 homicides uh, in our country in a given year. Um, When I was growing up in Detroit, Michigan, it was routine that there were 1,000 homicides just in my home city. Uh, in a year. So that's three per day. Uh, So we have just an astounding amount of homicide in our country compared to other similar countries in Canada, uh, England, France, Germany, uh, other countries of similar, um, you know, economic status. uh, we, we, We have more than five times as many homicides per capita.
1: Now, who is likely to face execution? And and uh, do these patterns of who commits serious crimes align with who actually faces the penalty of death?
0: Well, that's the real crux of the question. And so we spend a lot of time trying to first understand who commits homicide and who is the victim of homicide, and how is that distributed around the country and socially and demographically? What types of people tend to be uh, victims of homicide? And when you look at that, you see it's, it's pretty well distributed around the country. Uh, there are some hot spots. For example, New Orleans, uh, Louisiana has much more violence than uh, other cities, but um, there's a number of um, relatively uh, violent places. Um, but the greatest number of homicides, for example, are in Los Angeles because Los Angeles is a very big city. And when we look county by county, Los Angeles is the center Um, with the greatest number, absolute number of homicides. Uh, But when you look at uh, who gets the death penalty, I should say one other thing about the homicides. It tends to be a young man's game. Young men kill other young men. And that tends to be also within racial groups. So young white men uh, carry out homicides where their victims are other young white men for the most part. Uh, and it's rare that women commit homicide, and it's quite rare that women be the victims of homicide, statistically speaking. When we look at who gets executed, uh, which is the focus in our book, uh, it turns out that if you kill a, a woman, you're much more likely to get the death penalty than if you kill a man. And if you kill a white woman, you're uh, even more uh, likely. Some other things that... Um, are characterized um, characterize those who get executed as what decade was it when the crime occurred. It, it needs to be in the 1980s or 1990s because the death penalty varies dramatically over time. And it really should be in Houston, Texas. Uh, Houston, Texas, Harris County is the epicenter. So a person who committed a crime in, say, ni- the early 1990s, Uh, who had a white victim, a white female victim in particular, especially if he was an African-American male as the perpetrator, uh, who committed that crime in certain jurisdictions, uh, particularly in Houston, Texas, uh, that person might have a hundred times more likelihood of being executed than someone who committed a similar crime in Atlanta, Georgia, or Los Angeles, California, or Philadelphia. Uh, or Miami, uh, Miami, Florida. So it's, uh, it's about who is involved, it's about where it occurred, and it's about when. And those things, it's hard to argue that those are consistent with the constitutional guarantee of equal
1: protection. Not everyone who's sentenced to death is put to death. Once sentenced, uh, what do we know about the chance of actually being executed? Uh, what portion, for example, of those that are sentenced are overturned later or exonerated even? What, how does it break down that way?
0: It's a great question. We, we devoted a chapter in the book to the question of reversals. Uh, people will be very surprised, um, and we were surprised. Uh, to find out that among all those cases that have been fully reviewed, uh, only 16% of death sentences are actually carried out. We've had over 8,000 death sentences, but only um, about uh, 1,400 and so, and some uh, executions. About 70% of death sentences solemnly declared by the judge, intoning, may God have mercy on your soul. About 70% of those are overturned on appeal. And you can't overturn a death sentence because somebody misplaced a paperclip on a filing. It has to be uh, a serious uh, finding of flaw in the evidence presented or in the instructions to the jury or something that made a federal judge usually or sometimes a state Supreme Court rule that that trial, either the trial of guilt or the second trial for the penalty phase, uh, was so flawed that it has to be thrown out. So that's really a shocking number. I think if there's any number that's the most surprising, uh, it might be that one. Seventy percent of death sentences are overturned on appeal.
1: And what about the exoneration? Um, is is that counted in that statistic, or is that treated differently because the the processes work differently?
0: An exoneration is a subset of all those cases where there's a reversal. Uh, An exoneration is where the person is found to be not guilty after having been sentenced uh, to prison, and in this case, sentenced to death. So there's been almost 160 exonerations. And considering that there's been 1,400 executions, it means that there's been one exoneration for every nine or 10 uh, executions. And so that statistic, that ratio... Of a high, relatively high number of exonerations per execution is, is It's frankly quite quite staggering, and really uh, frightening, uh, because it suggests that we may have come close uh, to executing a, a fair number of people who are factually innocent, but maybe their innocence wasn't found out in
1: time. Now, as you noted at the start, this book is is primarily about. Um... About the facts, uh, about the statistics related to this, uh, to this issue, um, and it, it's not about uh, as much about um, the the explanation interpretation of this. But I wonder if you could put on your the other the other scholarly hat that you wear and and place this issue into its uh, public policy debate. Uh, where are we now? Uh, where where have we been in in um, the the public policy sense of the death death penalty and and whether uh, there there are efforts to, to change the way uh, the death penalty is uh, is used or or overturned again, where does it sit in the political process right now?
0: Well, that's a great question. And um, what we tried to do in this book was really say, um, let's do a program evaluation now that there's been forty years of experience with the new and improved modern death penalty. And, you know, we started out our conversation today talking about the 1972 decision to invalidate the existing laws. But, boy, talk about agenda setting. Uh, the, the states came back immediately with uh, a wave of new uh, capital punishment laws that were passed. Uh, Florida didn't even let the year go by. Uh, the The Supreme Court decision in 1972 came down in July. And by December, Florida had already enacted a new law. And many other states followed in 1973 and 74. And so there was a wave of um, innovations that came through the states, especially in the South. Uh, So there was um, a very strong states' rights, anti-Supreme Court rhetoric associated with um, the, the 1972 decision. What we saw then was a, um, a wave of uh, enthusiasm about using the death penalty and other very harsh on crime um, policies in the 1970s through the 80s and until about the mid-1990s. And then I would say, and we show statistically, it's it's a fact, that since about the mid-1990s, use of the death penalty has been on a dramatic decline. Um, and so have other uh, highly punitive uh, public policy, uh, criminal justice policies, uh, such as life without parole, and just the number of people in prison is all part of a system. Uh, so we we're in the we're very quickly backtracking from those um, from that increasing punitiveness in the 1970s and 80s. And today, if you remember, even the Republican primaries in the 2016 elections. People were talking about the need to get smarter on crime and to reduce the number of people uh, in prisons throughout the country. And so there is, um, I think, a lack of enthusiasm for the death penalty throughout the system. Even Houston, Texas, the epicenter that has executed 125 people, um, which is more than any other state other than the rest of the state of Texas, Uh, They didn't execute or even carry out a single death sentence in 2017. Uh, So things are really changing rapidly, and the death penalty is kind of dwindling away. It's used in a very small number of jurisdictions. Uh, So that's part of the puzzle that we really wanted to explore. Why did that happen?
1: Yeah, the, the title of the book, again, is Deadly Justice, a Statistical Portrait of the Death Penalty, published by Oxford University Press in 2017. Thank you, Frank Baumgartner, for your time today. Thank you, Marty, Kanisha, Arvind, and Colin, uh, uh, who aren't with us today, but who are the co-authors of the book. Uh, Frank, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Heath. It's been a pleasure.